Welcome to the Gateway Scottsdale audio podcast. Thanks for joining us for this week's message. We pray God speaks to you through this message and through his word today. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.gatewayscottsdale.tv. Now, let's tune in for this week's message. I'm so honored to be here. What Preston was saying is exactly right. We, we, I cherish the friendship that we have. Um, it seems like uh, God speaks so clearly through Preston, and uh, I can clearly uh, divide times in my life where uh, God has really used Preston to speak into my life, and I can mark those as before times and after times because of how powerful and impactful he has been in my life. And, uh, and so he's such a good friend, and it's just always an honor to come out here. We, from Gateway um, in Dallas, we, we watch and pay attention to what's going on here. We're so excited for your renovation, expanding, growing, uh, just really, really uh, so blessed and moved by what God is doing here in Scottsdale. So I'm really so honored to be here um, and just excited for what God is doing in this place. Um, I will say, though, it is so hot here. Um, I'm from Texas, so I know Texas heat, and this is unbelievably hot. This is this blows me away. I don't want to I don't want to talk about the weather, you know, because I feel like uh, that's somebody talks to you about the weather when they don't have anything better to say to you, you know. It's like you run out of conversation, and go, oh, that weather. So I don't want to talk about the weather because I, I should definitely have more to say to you. You guys, you know, are like a sister church, and so. I'm going to avoid just, uh, you know, it would be so stereotypical for a speaker to get up here and talk about how hot the weather is. That would be, it would be too cliche. I'll just say, though, I'll just say one thing about the weather <laughs> is that I'm, I'm kind of convinced after being here for the past couple of days that even hell is like 10 degrees cooler than it is here. I'm just saying... But I know Preston, he's been preaching, uh, you know, a couple messages on grace, which I think is great. Uh, I think if he were to change that and preach a message on hell, uh, it might not sound too bad considering what you guys are going through right now. So I think grace is a good topic for you. But I just don't want to focus on the weather, you know, because it just, it, would, it wouldn't be right. It, it, but yesterday when we pulled up, I'll tell you this, uh, they did a baptism last night for the service last night. And I can't tell you how tempted I was to jump in that swimming pool. It looked so wonderful in that moment. And uh, so, and that's all I'll say on that. I just, it's just one more thing if I could just say, I'm, I think Jehovah's Witnesses here have probably resorted to telemarketing. That's all I'll say. That's all I'll say about it. I just, I don't have anything else to say about it. I just, it's so hot here, but that's it. Um... I want to talk to you. Don't encourage me either, because I could go all day <laughs> talking about how ridiculously hot it is here. But uh, I want to bring to you a message uh, that I've titled Faithful Thomas. And uh, you know the, the story of Thomas in the Bible, but we'll go over it in just a moment. People love to call Thomas Doubting Thomas. There are inscriptions and writings and all of these things, and, and, and so many times people talk about, oh, doubting Thomas. Don't, 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 don't think about doubting Thomas. Don't act like doubting Thomas. We use Thomas as an illustration of who not to be in your Christian walk in, in life, and I'd like for us to, to maybe flip that around today and say Thomas maybe is an example for us of who to be like in Scripture. 
Maybe it's not the way that we've always seen the story of Thomas. And so uh, instead of calling him Doubting Thomas, I want to call him today Faithful Thomas. And I want us to to look at the story. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 20. And I want us to to look at this. And what I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to read all of the scripture at the beginning of the message so that we can lay out the entire story. So I'll read a large block of scripture and then, uh, and then I'll go through some different things that we can point out about Thomas, referring back to this story. So all the scripture that we're going to go through is right here at the beginning. And so I want you, though, to be able to listen to this. I'm sure many of you have heard this story. I want you to be able to listen to it with a fresh perspective, um, with fresh ears on, in this story. And even though it's a long passage of scripture, I want you to act like you're hearing this story for the first time. And let's maybe even put ourselves in Thomas's shoes as he walks through this. So if you have your Bibles, it's John chapter 20, verse 19, and it will be on the screen here uh, as well. So it says, that Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors. This is important, where the disciples were meeting. They're meeting behind locked doors. Why were they there? Because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Suddenly, Jesus was standing there among them, and what did he say to them? Here it is, peace be with you. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and in his side, and they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. I'm going to skip down now to verse 24. It says, one of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. He wasn't in the room. He didn't get to see him or experience him with the rest of the disciples. In verse 25, it says, they told him, we have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands. Put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound in his side. Eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Again, he said to them, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer, but believe. Thomas says, my Lord, my God. And then Jesus told him, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. So this is the story of Thomas. And so I want us to to replay this story, but this time, instead of looking down on Thomas, maybe put ourselves into his shoes for just a moment and think about this story from his perspective. You see, the disciples and, and many other people, thousands of people that had gathered and began to follow Jesus, they had put all of their hope and all of their faith into this one man, Jesus Christ. They had been waiting For generations before Thomas came along, people for generations had said over and over and over, a Messiah is coming. A Messiah will be here. He will will, uh, overthrow the the Roman rule that is persecuting us, that is tearing us down and and, and violating the the structure and the integrity of our people. And and this Messiah is going to come and deliver us from this oppressive rule. And so they put all their faith, all their hope, all their trust in this one man, Jesus Christ, only to then watch him hanging from a cross and breathe his last breath and die. And with that death, all of their hopes and their dreams for Jesus overthrowing the Roman rule, for for becoming the the reigning, ruling king of the earth again, all of their hopes and dreams had been shattered and crushed. 
All of us can relate to that in some way, uh, something that we believed so strongly for, even felt like God had promised to us, and when we don't see the fulfillment of that promise, our hopes and our trust in this one man, Jesus Christ, seem to disappear in an instant. And this is the way that Thomas felt. And so the disciples and Thomas, they gather in this room, they're in fear of what the Jews might do to them, and and so they're hiding in this room, in this locked basement, basically, and they're hiding away, and and Thomas is saying, I I, I just can't believe that this has happened. He's dealing with the despair and the discouragement, uh, the disappointment of what has happened. And then Mary Magdalene comes along and she says, you won't believe this, but I've seen Jesus. Thomas probably thinks to himself, of course, if anybody would say that they've seen Jesus, it would be Mary. Mary would want that to happen so bad. And there are so many things about her story that are questionable to Thomas. And then Peter comes along and Peter says, I've seen Jesus too. And Thomas is probably thinking, you you denied Christ. You have so much motivation to pretend like you have seen Christ. I don't know if I really believe you. And then Cleopas comes along and he says, I actually walked on the road to Emmaus. I walked this whole way with Jesus Christ, and then we sat down to eat a meal together, and in the breaking of the bread, Jesus was revealed to me. Thomas says, well, that doesn't make any sense. How do you walk down a road seven miles with someone and still not realize that that is Jesus who is walking with you? I, I still won't believe. At this point, Thomas is really, really low in his emotions. At this point, everything is not going well for him, and all these other people are saying these things. He doesn't know what to believe. So at this point, Thomas gets all emo, and he says, I'm going to get out of here, guys, all right? And so he gets out of there, and he, he walks out of that room, and uh, you know, he's like, I'm going to go for a walk in the streets, and, and whew, he flips up his hoodie, and he pouts down the street, you know? Not like a hoodie like you're thinking today, more like Knights of the Holy Grail kind of hoodie. It was that kind in my mind anyways. And so he's like, I'm out of here, guys. I'm done with this, you know? And he walks around, he takes a stroll through the city. He battles with his emotions and he's dealing with this. God, where are you in this time that I'm going through? And then finally he gets back to that room where the disciples are in there hiding and he walks back in that room and you can see that the tone of the room has changed completely. People are bouncing up and down with joy. They pounce on Thomas the moment that he walks in. They say, you won't believe it, but we just saw Jesus. He was right here in this room. I don't know about you, but I I have had many times where I feel that way. God, you knew how badly I needed an experience with you. And yet you showed up for everybody else other than me. Maybe, Maybe sometimes here in church, you look around and you go, God, you know You know what I've been going through this week. You know how badly I needed an encounter with you. And as I look around, it seems like everyone in this room is having a profound experience with you, but I'm not. You can imagine the the despair that Thomas feels in this moment. He says, God, you know I needed you to show up for me. And you know everything, God. You could have shown up in this room at any time, but you showed up in the one moment where I wasn't here. And so Thomas feels even more rejected, and in this rejection, he cries out. He says, I will not believe unless I can see him for myself. And then he takes it one step further than anybody else had taken it. He says, not only that, I want to touch the wounds in his hands and in his side. And if I can do that, then I will believe. Thomas makes this declaration that I will not believe unless I see this. Eight days later, Jesus shows up. And he says, come here, Thomas, I want you to touch the wounds in my hands and in my side. 
And it was in that moment that Thomas realized, this really is my God. He falls to his knees and he says, you are my God and my Lord. In this moment, he has this profound experience with Christ. And in that moment, he realizes, you really are my God. Thomas gets to experience this, and, and, and this is the story of his crisis of faith. And in that, he was the only one who made that declaration that said, I will not believe unless I can see this. And this is why so many people call him Doubting Thomas. I'm going to be honest with you, though. It bothers me so much whenever I hear people talk about Thomas that way. Let's just think about a few little things for um, just a moment. Thomas says, I won't believe unless I can see this. And so we go, oh, there's Doubting Thomas. And look how faithful the other disciples were. Let's think about just for a moment, where were the disciples? They were hiding in a locked basement out of fear. It's not like they were out on the streets preaching the good news and, and, and facing persecution. They were hiding in a locked basement. Oh, Thomas, you doubting Thomas. I can't believe you would do that when all the other disciples are living the good life over here, really proclaiming God's goodness. All of them were having a crisis of faith. But Thomas bravely goes into this moment and says, I make a declaration that I so desperately want to see God, I will not believe unless this happens. That was the crisis of faith that, that Thomas had. I, I had a really similar crisis of faith in my life. Uh, I was about uh, 13 years old, and uh, for all my life, hunting has been a passion of mine. Uh, it was the way I was raised. My dad took me hunting all the time, and at my grandparents' house, they lived a couple hours from, from where we lived out in the country, and there was a special deer hunting season just for youth. So anybody under a certain age could go hunting during this time. And every year, my brother and I, we looked forward to this. And for the first time ever, my dad wasn't able to go on that trip with us. And so we were going to be hunting all by ourselves. I was 13. My brother was 10. We were so excited for this youth season. No one else can be out there, only kids. And so we get first shot at, at everything. And so we were there, and I told my brother, I said, James, uh, Here's the deal. I don't want to mess this up. This is our first time to go out by ourselves. I don't want to mess this up. I don't want us to sleep in or miss it or something to go wrong. Let's set our alarm clock for one hour earlier than what we would normally set it for. And he goes, yeah, I like it. Good idea. That's a great idea. So we set our alarm clock. We're about to go to bed. My grandfather walks in. He goes, just want to let you guys know today is daylight saving time. So you're going to need to adjust your clock for that. So he said, oh no, what, what does that mean? He left and walked out of the room. We thought, what should we do? I, I don't understand. Do, does, this, does the clock go forward? Does it go backwards? I mean, we had literally no idea. And so we said, you know what? If, if, it, if it's supposed to go backwards, but it really goes forward, and we adjust our clock the wrong way, we'll be off by two hours, and we'll miss it completely. Uh, what should we do? I, none of this makes sense, but I was 13. It made sense in my mind. And so I said, you know what? Here's what we'll do. We'll move our clock back two hours, just to make sure we cover any error that we've had. Now, we've already set our alarm for one hour earlier than we needed to. We set our, uh, we moved the clock back two hours just to make sure we could cover anything. It was, daylight saving time was giving us an hour, falling back. So now, instead of waking one hour up before we were supposed to, we're waking up four hours before we were supposed to. It felt like we had slept for 10 minutes. The alarm went off and we were like, man, crazy. So we got dressed, we went out to the deer stand, we sat in the deer stand, and whenever my dad would take us hunting, he would get us there at exactly the right time. We'd spend maybe 30 minutes in the stand before the sun would come up. So we had this kind of internal clock where after 30 minutes, the sun is supposed to come up. 
well, I didn't even have a watch on me. About 30 minutes goes by, the sun doesn't come up. And I said, well, we did set our clock for an hour earlier. You know, in 30 more minutes, the sun's going to come up. We wait for a little while longer, the sun doesn't come up. Let me just sort of skip to the end of the story here. The sun doesn't come up for one hour. It doesn't come up for two hours. It doesn't come up for three hours that we've been sitting in the stand. It doesn't come up for four hours that we've been sitting in the stand. If you, if you grew up in the 80s in an evangelical church, then you'll know what I'm talking about. All we ever talked about or feared was the rapture. So four hours into this, we thought the rapture happened completely. We were totally convinced of it. We were on our knees praying in tongues. We were singing worship songs to each other. I mean, we lost our minds. We were just praying that God would maybe swing back around and pick us up on his way back up. We, we thought we had missed it completely. I mean, we, our minds melted that day. We, we lost it in the deer stand. And uh, so eventually the sun did come up. And so, but that was my crisis of faith that seems exactly like Thomas's in, in my mind. It was very traumatic and uh, I'm still not over it completely. But uh, I want to point out three characteristics of what Thomas went through. And they are three characteristics that I believe we can learn from. I'm going to spend most of my time on this first characteristic, and then we'll talk briefly about two other ones that he exhibited. But the first characteristic that I think we can learn from, not, not to shame or to, to shun, but something that we can learn from in Thomas, the first one that is his doubt. Thomas's doubt, I think, is something that we're not supposed to look down on or criticize, but something we're supposed to learn from. We've been maybe taught in church that doubt is something that's wrong, that it's something that we're not supposed to experience or go through or encounter in our lives. And if you're going through doubt, then your faith must be weaker than those around you. Your faith must be weakened and, and you're not experiencing the true Christian life that you're supposed to walk in. Doubt should never be a part of what you're going through. So I'm gonna explore several different parts of doubt. And the first, first would be faith and reason, the difference between faith and reason. You see, um, some people look at the world the creation, the, the, the trees, the stars, the sun, the moon, the people around us, the world that we live in, some people look at all of that and say, there's no way that there's not a God. There has to be a God. I look at all of this and I go, somebody must have created this. And they come to the conclusion, there is a God. And what everyone would tell you in, in, in today is that the people who come up to that conclusion, they come to that conclusion by faith. And then there's a different type of person over here who uh, looks at the world, sees all of this, and, and, and says, no, uh, surely there is no God. I, I believe that, that there was this natural process that brought all of this to be, and there's no, there's no God. And so there are two different types of people, and what is told to us is that this person that decides there is a God comes to that conclusion by faith, but this person who decides there is no God comes to that conclusion by reason or logic. And so if you were to use the logic side of your brain, you would come to the conclusion that there's no God. If you were to use the faith side of your brain, then you would come to the conclusion that there is a God. Tim Keller points out in his book, Reasons for God, that that is not true in any way. Both of, both of these conclusions use a combination of faith and reason to come to that conclusion. Every single day in your life, you operate through faith and reason. Tim Keller illustrates this point by reading this um, letter that was written to the New York Times. And uh, so I want to read this to you now. It's in his book, and he writes that this is the letter that was written to the New York Times. It says, when the Hubble telescope pointed to a black spot in the sky about the size of an eraser head for a week, it found 30,000 galaxies. 
over 13 billion years old with many trillions of stars and many more trillions of inferred planets. So how significant are you? You're not a unique snowflake. You're not special. You're not just another, you are just another piece of decaying matter on the compost pile of this world. Nothing of who you are and what you will do in this short time that you have here will matter. Everything short of that realization is vanity. And then it says, so, meaning therefore, because I've told you all of this, therefore do this. Celebrate life in every moment, admire its wonders, and love without reservation. To me, that seems like one of the biggest leaps of faith that you could possibly make in your life. You don't matter. Nothing that you do will ever matter in the grand scheme of the cosmos with how large everything is. You are insignificant. You don't matter. So, therefore, what you should do is enjoy life and love one another. See, it was all survival of the fittest. The strong win, the weak die, that's how we're here. That's the only reason that we're here is because the strong survive, the strong kill the weak. That's why you're here. That's what got you to this place. So because of that, love one another. It takes a whole lot of faith to believe that. I hear that and go, you want me to kill the weak? I don't understand. How do you get to that place where you go, you don't matter. None of this matters. This is the process of, of the way that, that, that life works. So, therefore, love one another. But I can, I, it doesn't take very much faith at all for me to believe that a loving creator created us, designed you individually, and then asked you clearly in Scripture to love one another, to care for one another, to be the body of Christ. It doesn't even take very much faith to believe that. The truth is that both, both of these things require both faith and reason. You must use both faith and logic to come to whatever conclusion it is that you're going to come to. Every single day in your life, no one can say, I go by empirical evidence only in my life. No one can say that. It would be a lie. If you go eat at a restaurant after this service you are using a level of faith in your life, faith that they have prepared that food properly, faith that you're eating something that is healthy. You have no idea where it came from, how it got there, what the process was. You don't know the cook's cooking it. You are using a level of faith. If you get in your car and you drive after this today, you are employing faith, faith that people will stay in their lanes. Every single day, faith is required. And so to say, well, the Christians use faith to come to their conclusion, but everyone else uses logic or, or reason. It isn't true. You must use both of those. And in that, doubt is going to be a part of what you go through. You, you must be able to balance these things and, and, and learn how you're using them. It, I guess another question that we would ask in this that Thomas was doubting in this time, we would say, is doubt a sin? Is it sinful that Thomas doubted? I, I would say that I don't believe in any way that it's sinful that Thomas doubted. And the main thing that I would point to in that is that Jesus gave Thomas exactly what he asked for. If Thomas was really in sin and he says, I will not believe until I can touch his hands and his side, why would Jesus come along and go, here, Thomas, Jesus offered it. Here, I, I want you to do this. When else in scripture do we see God give somebody something for committing a sin? Give them exactly what it is that they asked for. You say, I don't believe in any way that doubt is a sin. In fact, I would say that doubt is a necessary ingredient in faith. You see, uh, we would say many times the opposite of faith is doubt. 
either you have faith or you doubt. The opposite of faith would be doubt. I don't believe that's true at all. I believe doubt and faith go hand in hand together. The opposite of faith would be certainty. If you were absolutely certain about something, then you wouldn't need faith. You've been told that that you should have absolute certainty in in your faith in God many times, especially if you've been in church for a long period of time, we've been made to feel that doubt is wrong, that it's the opposite of faith, and that you must have certainty. But if you were truly certain about everything, there'd be no need for faith. The truth is that we find faith in our doubts, that we deal with our doubts and that we walk through these things and that in that place is where we find doubt. Certainty is is a place where uh, a, a place that leads us to spiritual pride. Certainty is not a, a place that I, I want to be in in any way. You see, uh, think of the statement that says that, that many of you have probably heard people say, I've never doubted. I've always believed. I have absolute certainty in my faith. I've always believed this. I've never doubted. I have complete faith in, in God. In that statement, the subject of that sentence is you, and the provider of your faith is you. At that moment, certainty is an idol in your life. Your faith becomes an idol in your life in that moment. In that moment, you're saying, I provided my own faith in God. The truth is that that certainty uh, is dangerous in that way that it leads to spiritual pride. So I would say, is doubt a sin? No, but certainty can be. Think about this. If you were to take the the certainty to the furthest level uh, that you could take it, imagine this. If If there was anything in life that you were absolutely certain about, that would mean that you could receive no new information that would change what you believe about that subject. And if you could receive no new information that would change what you believe about something, then you are God. It would mean that you you have seen everything from every angle and all possibilities and that you have perfect understanding in that. And only God can have that. And so we've set this certainty as an idol in our lives and and dealt with it that way. And what we need to understand is uncertainty is a good thing in our lives. You see, certainty starts war and, and, and violence and even slavery, a certainty that, that I'm right and, and that other people are wrong, a certainty that I'm better than someone else. This certainty is what causes so much destruction in our life, yet uncertainty is the root of all growth. Uncertainty is what causes us to grow. As the old adage goes, the man who believes he knows everything learns nothing. You see, we cannot learn anything without first unknowing something. First, admitting that we don't know everything. The more we admit that we do not know, the more opportunities we have to grow. See, when I was uh, a kid, I I believed a lot of ridiculous stuff, and uh, I was certain of these things, and then I grew. Growing is the part of this that, that causes you to be able to expand in your knowledge of this. I believed when I was a kid that if you sneeze with your eyes open, your eyes would pop out and fall on the ground. I believed that with my whole heart. I, totally, I was absolutely certain about that. I believed that if you looked cross-eyed, you would stay that way. So someone would be like, you have something on your nose. And I wouldn't even look. I was scared to death of going cross-eyed and staying that way. I believed that you could dig to China. And one time I thought I actually got close. I genuinely believed that. I thought I was really, really close to getting there. I thought that Washington, D.C. was actually Washington, B.C., and I believed you had to have a time machine to get there. I genuinely believed that. I was certain about that. 
I, I, I thought literally that there was a swimming pool in a car whenever people talked about carpooling. I literally believed that. When I was a teenager, it got even worse. I thought Nickelback was a good band. I genuinely believed that. I want you to contrast just for a moment the, the disciples versus the Pharisees. The Pharisees were absolutely certain about everything that they believed. The Pharisees had to know the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, frontwards and backwards. They had to memorize the first five books of the Bible, and they were absolutely certain about their faith. And yet Jesus called them whitewashed tombs full of dead, dry bones. Contrast that to the disciples who fumbled their way through their faith constantly, but contrast the two of them and think about this, the people who were certain about their faith and the people who were struggling over and over again, these were actually the people who were closest to God. The ones who were brave enough to deal with the doubt and the unbelief that they were going through. They were the ones who were closest to God. In the Bible, in the book of Jude, chapter one, verse 22, it just says, it says tell Christians, be merciful to those who doubt. We've got to come to the place where we have mercy for those who doubt. The second attribute that we can admire in Thomas is his desire. Thomas was brave enough to make this direct declaration that unless I see the hands, the, the wounds in his hands and in his side, I will not believe. That, that was made, I don't believe, out of defiance, saying I, I'm choosing that I don't believe in God. What he's saying is, I so desperately want to believe in God that I desperately need an encounter with him. It's a desire that comes deep within you that says, I want to know God so bad that I will pursue the doubt that I'm experiencing to the depths that I need to in order to have an experience with God. And it was Thomas's desire that allowed him to have that experience with God, that he dove deep into the desire that he had to have a real encounter with Christ. For me, uh, as a, uh, growing up in church, my faith was far too similar to maybe a child's belief in Santa Claus. If you think about a child's belief in Santa Claus, you're told that Santa Claus is real. Someone tells you that. Then you see it's confirmed by your peers. All the children around you believe that. You ask somebody and they believe that. And then you see evidence of that. You, you go down on Christmas morning and the presents are there and the milk has been drank and the, the, the cookies have been eaten and you believe that because you see the evidence. And growing up in church, it was sort of like I was told that God was real. My peers around me confirmed that and then I could see evidence in what was happening in the church. And so I decided then to skate in on my parents' faith, to just ride in on their faith in God. And I never really took the opportunity until much later in life to dive into the depths of my doubt and to deal with it and have to have my own experience with Christ. And nothing really changed for me until I had my own experience with Christ. It wasn't good enough for me to, many people come to church simply to be propped up in their faith. If I'm here around the body, people will gather around me and keep me from standing, and I have to develop my own faith and live out of that faith. And so if people will stand around me, they'll prop me up, and, and that's how I live my, my life in faith. Whenever it says, believe in Jesus, you could almost every single time in the Bible replace that word. It's an accurate translation to replace that word. When it says, believe in Jesus, the same thing would be said to say, trust in Jesus. And so if your view of faith is that you've got to prop yourself up, stand up on your own two feet and believe in your faith, that's not what Jesus was asking for. 
when he said believe in me, what he was really looking for is that you would so confidently lean on him the way you lean on a wall, never even a thought in your mind that that wall might collapse and that you would fall. It's not about propping yourself up, but instead about leaning into him. That's where your trust and your belief comes from. It's not ever anything that you manufacture on your own, but it comes from him. And then the third attribute that we can admire in Thomas is his declaration. Because of the experience that, that Thomas had, he was able then to go out and to declare God's faithfulness and God's goodness. He was able to then go out and preach the gospel to many, and he planted many churches. Thomas was able, because of the, the way that he dove into the doubt that he was feeling, he was able then to go out and to declare God's goodness to the ends of the earth. Thomas was bravely going into that moment and saying, I will not believe. He was dealing with his doubt in such a way that he had his own personal experience with Christ that caused him, that pushed him to go out into the world. And the thing that, that, that caused Thomas to be able to go out and declare that is the same thing that is there for us today. We put our rest, our hope, and our trust in the resurrection of Jesus Christ that Thomas experienced the resurrection of Jesus Christ and was then able to go out and to preach to the ends of the earth. Thomas uh, went from there and he founded Christian churches in Palestine, Mesopotamia, Parthia, Ethiopia, and India. And church tradition holds that the apostle Thomas actually baptized the Magi. That that's how strong the witness that Thomas had, that he was able to go out from there and preach God's good news to the ends of the earth. St. John Chrysostom says this about Thomas. Thomas, being once weaker in faith than the other apostles, listen to this, toiled through the grace of God more bravely, more zealously, and tirelessly than them all, so that he went preaching over nearly all the earth, not fearing to proclaim the word of God to savage nations. That's how bravely Thomas was able to go out and to preach that. We have that same ability when we look to the resurrection. You see, it's amazing to think about. There's no way that, that the gospel of Jesus Christ could have been taught in the same city where the resurrection happened, not for one second, not for one minute, not for one week, not for one month, if people couldn't have gone and verified themselves that Jesus was not there. Jesus appeared to thousands of people, over 500 at one time. No movement has ever started on one event that is stronger than the Christian movement. We rely on the resurrection. We look to that, and because of that, you now are able, when you have had your own experience with Christ, to go out and to preach the good news to other people. If you have difficulty sharing your faith with other people, I want you to ask yourself a very real question today, which is, have you yourself had a very real encounter with Christ? Because when you experience Christ, you can't help but to go out and tell other people about it. And so if you struggle in that area, for the longest time before I had my own real encounter with Christ, I struggled with the ability to be able to tell people about my faith because I needed that very real experience with Christ. Here, here's what the, the experience with Christ did for Thomas. I want you to think about for a moment, Thomas says, I want to touch his side. And Jesus was stuck with a spear that went up into his chest cavity and pierced his heart. And he was stuck with this spear, and he tells Thomas, here, I want you to come and place your hand in my side. 
So Thomas is able to stand there with the risen Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, and he's able to place his hand on the side of Jesus where the spear entered into his chest cavity. And then Thomas goes out bravely to savage nations preaching the goodness of God. And do you know how Thomas died? He died being a martyr preaching the good news of God. And the way that that happened was that he took a spear to the chest. That he had such a profound encounter with Christ. Seeing the place where the spear had entered Jesus' chest cavity. That he was able then to preach the gospel so bravely that he took a spear himself. And there's no way to know, but I can only imagine that in that moment when he looked down and he realized that he was dying and the spear had punctured his chest cavity, that he could look at that and say, I'm proud to go out in a similar way that my Lord did because I had a profound experience with him. The bravery of sharing the good news comes from a very real experience with Christ. Thanks for listening to this week's message. If you'd like to know more about Gateway Church, please visit our website at www.gatewayscottsdale.tv.